0: When testosterone is bound to a protein, that protein cannot pass uh, the membrane. Testosterone can only pass the membrane and interact with its intracellular receptor. So the receptor for steroids is inside the cell. It's not on the outside of the cell. It's not within the membrane. It's on the inside of the cell. When testosterone is bound to a protein, either sex hormone binding globulin or albumin, it cannot pass the membrane. So you could say, you could argue that it's, that it's biologically unavailable. Only when it is free, when it is separated from what it is bound to, can it pass the phospholipid bilayer. It can pass the membrane, it can go inside the cell, bind with its receptor, translocate to the nucleus, upregulate transcription and translation and make more proteins. That's how it does its job.
1: All right, Dave, so uh, I really appreciate your time. I know you're uh, <laughs> exceptionally busy during these times. Um, so it's gonna be really cool to chat to you about your your expertise and it has a lot of relevance to what we do. Um, before we jump into the episode, why don't you do me a favor and tell, tell people who you are, what you're up to and, and where you are.
0: Uh, sure, so uh, my name's David Hooper. I'm an assistant professor at Jacksonville University in beautiful North Florida. Um, I've been here for three years. Uh, This is my second position since uh, since graduating with my PhD. Uh, Before this, I spent two years at Armstrong State University in Savannah. Uh, My PhD was from uh, the Ohio State University um, under the advisor Dr. Kramer. Um, I originally attended. uh, I originally became his student with the interest of studying really strength and conditioning, but he's known in the in the world of endocrinology, and um, that really started to get me into that. Uh, Slowly over the course of of my time in graduate school, I I moved from strength training endocrinology to really kind of overtraining endocrinology and starting to study this crazy area of low testosterone in athletic populations. And that has slowly morphed into some research in the female athlete triad as well. Um, I still, I still love strength and conditioning. I still love sports as a whole. Uh, so I still, uh, try to do sports science and strength and conditioning type research. So I have really, uh, diverse interests, but ultimately I would, I would call myself an exercise physiologist with, uh, with interest in, in just tons of different areas of exercise physiology.
1: Nice, no, you said, I, I think you're the, the, the research area in, um, Testosterone physiology is where we're really interested in, particularly this idea of hypogonadal condition. Um, And although you're working in it in the context of exercising males, I think there's a lot of crossover to what we do in cancer. And I think before we go into that, it's probably worth talking about what normal um, physiology looks like in in that space.
0: Sure. Uh, So uh, the whole system starts at the brain. Uh, The brain sends out a signal uh, to your testes and your testes sends out testosterone. When your body says, okay, I've got enough testosterone, there's, there's something called uh, negative feedback that tells the brain, stop secreting testosterone, we have enough. Uh, testosterone, broadly speaking, is responsible for two uh, key elements. Uh, the first being anabolism. So we know testosterone is responsible for growth, broadly speaking uh the other area that testosterone is responsible for is androgenism which is uh what makes a man a man uh if a uh fetus in utero doesn't receive testosterone uh they will actually not grow the male equipment if you like so those are your two areas anabolism and androgenism
1: so talk about it in the context of of um exercise in particular with anabolism because um it's it's really important for us to understand both the normal um or, or how it works typically and then how it might work when testosterone is suppressed so how does yeah. testosterone play a role in anabolism
0: so it's uh yeah it's a, it's a tough it's a tough question to answer because it's it's so nuanced you know you could you would probably start by thinking testosterone is good and And generally speaking, yes, uh definitely, more testosterone means more growth, of course, ultimately, that's why uh anabolic androgenic steroids uh, are such a big hit because more testosterone generally speaking, means more muscle, so then uh, knowing that, you might think less testosterone is going to be bad, but it's not that simple you see it's It's been known uh, for a long time in really, really active populations. Uh, And by really active, I mean, uh, you know, long distance runners, people that run stupid amounts, you know, at at least 50 miles a week, uh, and and often a lot more. It's been known that they have lower testosterone concentrations. So your first thought when you see that is, okay, that sounds bad. But in reality, um, it's not always bad. The testosterone can be reduced. The person can have absolutely no negative symptoms associated with that. Their physical performance could be improving. And there's really nothing to worry about it's it's just it's just a number it's just a you know it's a it's a it's a phantom condition but uh when the testosterone uh really drops and gets exceptionally low that's when it becomes a problem and then so here's another kind of uh difficult area and i would imagine that at some point uh soon you were probably going to ask you know what's what's normal testosterone so believe it or not hypogonadism low testosterone there there isn't an official number of which, when you are below it, you are hypogonadal. Uh, that doesn't exist. In fact, you are not clinically hypogonadal until you actually start suffering from symptoms of hypogonadism. So you could so you could have one person with a with a higher testosterone concentration than the previous person, but they suffer all of these negative symptoms. And then the person with the lower testosterone concentration, they suffer no symptoms, so they they don't have hypogonadism so um it's a really tricky nuanced area where uh you need to you need to figure out number one if you know what the testosterone concentration is but number two much more importantly is is this person suffering from symptoms of hypogonadism
1: so what are the symptoms of hypogonadism
0: uh so there are all kinds of things that you you typically do not want so uh the the thing that people think uh, think of first, probably because of uh, the commercials that you see on TV, certainly here in the United States, is you think of sexual dysfunction. But if you are a if you are a coach, um, you probably don't really care that much about your athlete having sexual dysfunction. I mean, maybe you do, but maybe you don't. But it doesn't it doesn't affect their their physical performance necessarily. Um, but other things that really do become much more of a concern are fatigue, for example, generally speaking. Uh, Another huge concern would be uh, reduced muscle mass. And uh, perhaps uh, the biggest concern uh, that is hidden, that people aren't aware of, is uh, the association of low testosterone with low bone density. And that one's one's the killer, uh, because generally people don't know what their bone density is. It's a hidden disease in that regard. And then you typically find out your bone density is low when you start suffering from stress fractures. The the area most prone to low bone density is the lumbar spine, which is just a brutal area to get a stress fracture. Um, uh, Athletic trainers will know that if you you have a stress fracture in your spine, you essentially can't do anything. Your your exercise prescription is going to be bed rest for a little while uh, until uh, it starts to heal up. And then when it starts to heal up, you can actually start incorporating exercise but, but that's the, that, that can be a consequence of this hypogonadism. Stress fractures and the area most prone to stress fracture uh, and low density in the lumbar spine. It's just a, that's a brutal injury and a, a brutal part of this condition.
1: So what are you trying to do in your context to try and um, target this or, or work with it in the populations you do?
0: Well, uh, I, I haven't worked anything prospectively in this area, to be honest with you. Um, we have we've done some research in the area of uh, hypogonadism, and then the consequences of hypogonadism. Because uh, this this area of study, by the way, is light years behind kind of the uh, the female equivalent, which is the female athlete triad. Um, the two the the female athlete triad. The original research came first. Uh, you can go back to approximately the 1970s, where people started correlating. Um, Amenorrhea, so the loss of the menstrual cycle with um, with uh, mileage, basically running mileage that then progressed into the female athlete triad, as we know it, which is the people that run more are more amenorrheic and then also have low bone density. The uh, the men were studied right away, right at the same time. You know, if you think about, if you're a scientist, if you're a if you're a man reading that original research paper, which is people that run a lot, uh, they tend to lose their menstrual cycle. You would probably immediately think, you know, that's interesting. I wonder if male sex hormones go down. And they did those studies right away uh, in the in the 1980s. But the male area of this research never took off. And uh, when we did uh, uh, my dissertation. a uh, little over five years ago, we were one of the first people to actually document bone density, which had been known in women forever. We were, uh, we were one of the first to actually start documenting um, the people suffering from the symptoms of hypogonadism, which we just gave them a simple aging male symptoms questionnaire. And then we were we also started to make the link to nutrition, that's how far behind this area of research is. That's all been known in women for decades, and yet the the male research is just starting to finally document it that it that it does exist in men. Um, so most of what we've done is kind of looking to see if everything that applies to women applies to men, and then the next the next area of study that I would that I would love to start getting involved in is when you find these men uh, with the low bone density and the low testosterone, do. Uh, the treatments, um, the kind of the simple treatments that are recommended, like vitamin D supplementation, calcium supplementation, and then the area that I would really like to study, does heavy resistance training help to offset uh, all of these uh, kind of complications of hypogonadism? That would be the next step that I would like to do. But that stuff is tough. That, now, that's now long-term training uh, studies. Uh, you need a DEXA. You need to be able to do the bone scans and it takes, uh, it takes months, if not years for bone density to recover. So that's, that's, uh, that's not a small feat. That's not going to be an easy study to, to pull up.
1: I want to talk about the, uh, the resistance training, because that's predominantly where we focus, particularly in the, in the area of, of prostate cancer with ADT and, and low T, um, how. What are the mechanisms at play for your population? Is it like what's what's playing a role in terms of volume of training that's suppressing T? Uh,
0: don't know. Uh, the the if you if you want to go with the female analogy, the female athlete triad analogy, we know that in women, it's not eating enough. It's it's low energy availability. There is a a new idea. Uh, or a new trend towards this uh, this reds uh, terminology, where people want to lump the men and the women together and put it under this all of, all under this one category of all being caused by low energy availability, but that's not necessarily the case. Even in even in um, even in my dissertation, there were examples of men that had low testosterone, but didn't have any negative symptoms. And had uh, high energy availabilities. So what do you do to that person? You know that their their energy availability is already high. So you're not going to drive up their testosterone by making them eat even more because their energy availability is already is already good. So although sometimes it could be low energy availability, just as it is in women, other times it could be it could even be not a problem at all if the testosterone is low, but they don't suffer from any other symptoms, then you have nothing to do. Um, But ultimately, it seems to be this enormous amounts of activity uh, with inadequate recovery would just be the most simple way to put it. It could be associated with not eating enough, but sometimes they're eating enough and their their testosterone is still low. So it just seems to be this massive volume of activity and then probably inadequate recovery. Because these, these training volumes, they're they're remarkable. They're they're unbelievable. What what uh, what people can do, particularly these distance runners.
1: And you did some really cool work. Um, oh God, I don't know how long ago it is now. With uh, with people at the Kona at the Ironman, give us a, a little yeah. insight into like that kind of level of athlete and what they experience.
0: Well, that was that was really cool. Um, so uh, unfortunately, I wasn't on the data collection team, so I didn't make the trip to uh, Kona, Hawaii for the for the Ironman World Championships. Um, but I believe Dr. Kassa at the University of Connecticut, he was the PI on the study. And then he, he, he did a little bit of everything uh, with the athletes that he recruited there. Um, the original study, and I, I don't even know what the original uh, hypotheses were, uh, but it was all surrounding uh, Dr. Kassa's work in uh, cold water immersion. But he also got their blood and he also analyzed their testosterone and cortisol concentrations. And so um, he uh, graciously offered Dr. Kramer and I to uh, write a paper in that area on these uh, elite endurance athletes. So I believe the year was 2011 that they got the blood data. We wrote the paper a couple of years later. And what you're talking about now is you're talking about the Ironman. And for those unfamiliar with the Ironman, it is uh, it is it's ridiculous. It is a uh, a couple of mile swim, it is over a hundred miles on the bike, and then you wrap that up with a marathon. And this is the world championships. So I, I would say, by definition, these are the world's fittest men. Um, we we, were, we yeah, I mean, so we were able to look at their uh, testosterone concentrations. Um, at baseline and then immediately after and then for a couple of days after they finish the race and what is what is really interesting about this population is that much of the research in the men uh, up to this point had been done on competitive runners uh, or recreational runners or people that just run a decent amount but what we were talking about now for the first time here is elite endurance athletes so the training volumes are probably higher, the training intensities are higher, and again, these are now the world's fittest men. And what we saw in this, in this research study that hadn't been shown before with the highly active men but not elite athletes was now we saw really, really low testosterone concentrations. I mean, just incredibly low. So before, the early work by Dr. Hackney had shown reduced testosterone concentrations a lot of the time, but not clinical numbers, just uh, just lower than normal populations. This time, now that you're taking the elite, very competitive athletes, now you're, now you're talking about extremely low clinical concentrations. And in fact, more than half um, of the participants were at least... In the gray area of testosterone concentration where you would look at it and you would say, okay, we need to find out if this person is suffering from symptoms of hypogonism because this T is really low. And in fact, a couple of the subjects were even feminine levels of testosterone, which is just remarkable. So that's what we saw there for the first time, is that's how bad this can get when the athletes get that good.
1: So if if it's predominantly kind of high training volume and low, I suppose, recovery or energy availability, um would it not make sense or would it play that just taking the volume down and and trying to recover them that way how long does that look or yeah. what does that look like
0: yeah i well i don't know it would it would be very hard to get these kona uh, uh world uh, world champion competitors to to buy into the idea that you could you could substantially reduce your training volume um and maybe get your testosterone to come back up um it's going to take some convincing you know these are these are people that that really are probably willing to make this sacrifice, well, well, have probably consciously already made that sacrifice where they will accept that they are going to suffer from some pretty negative symptoms associated with this hypogonadism at times. And they are willing to suffer from that in order to compete um, at the highest level of, it, uh, of endurance sports. And you know, that's where it gets really interesting is that seems unfair. And now you can get into a fascinating area uh, of testosterone research that, that, that I love um, because it brings, it brings so many different worlds together. But it's should these men, when they're clinically low testosterone concentrations, should they be allowed to receive testosterone supplementation? That's, a, that's, a, that's something that WADA have decided that they should not be able to, by the way. The WADA does offer therapeutic use exemptions, but it does not offer it for uh, what you could broadly call overtraining. They only uh, offer therapeutic use exemptions for testosterone in the cases of what they call organic conditions. And what they define as organic conditions are things like cancer or genetic disease. They won't allow it for this overtraining phenomenon.
1: Which is fascinating, and I think even with with the variability in what you are saying, where you can be low T without any symptoms, and it, I yeah. I don't necessarily like I kind of would side with Wada in that regard because you could theoretically try to get your T low enough and try and find that sweet yeah. spot between low T to to warrant um exogenous testosterone and not experience a lot of symptoms. Um,
0: I I agree I agree with you. I I, I agree with Wada too. Uh, It just, it, it stinks that these men don't get to do it. Um, uh, But, but you're right. All they would do is, uh, as, as you, as you, uh, as you said there, remember that you're not hypogonadal unless you suffer from the symptoms. So now all you're going to do, if WADA allows this, is you're going to go to your doctor and you're going to say, I have sexual dysfunction. Um, I want tea. And the doctor's going to give it to him. So it, it would just be abused. And it's such a shame but but that's uh, that's the system that we have and unfortunately that that really is the way it has to
1: It's be- really interesting what you were you were telling me in the case of Lance Armstrong where he would have been exempt.
0: Yeah, well, uh he would have been allowed to apply for one, right? Because obviously famously he did suffer from testicular cancer. And there's this there's this really awesome uh moment uh if you remember when he finally acknowledged that he had done this. Uh he went on with Oprah, right? And and of course Oprah is, you know, uh probably one of the world's leading interviewers, right? I mean, that is, she would be one of the most world famous interviewers uh, out there, right? Uh, and But but Oprah, of course, is not a, a sports scientist, and I, and I don't blame her for not knowing this, but she didn't know at a moment during their interview when Lance Armstrong said he finally admitted to taking the testosterone and he said something to the effect of, I justified it to myself because of what happened to me. Regarding the cancer. And if Oprah had known, it would have been awesome because she could have jumped on him right there and she could have said, But Wada agrees with that. <laughs> and you could have applied and you could have applied for a waiver. So why didn't you? And she could have crushed him. And unfortunately, of course, uh, uh, Oprah didn't know the nuances of, of Wada's rules <laughs> on, on whether or not you can take testosterone. Unfortunately, but it would have been great to hit him at that point and and, and remind him of that. Now I don't I don't hate Lance um, for taking testosterone I don't I don't hate any athlete for for taking testosterone I don't I don't really buy into the whole uh, level playing field sanctity of the sport thing anyway uh, because I don't think it is a level playing field um, I, I I don't believe in that uh, the the mistakes that Lance made were were um, you know basically uh, I believe he was accused of um, really threatening people that were outing him and you know, those people were telling the truth and he was threatening them. That's, this, that's where he really crossed the line. Uh, but he, he could have he could have applied for a therapeutic use exemption and I assume he would have gotten it. I would assume he has, he has low testosterone as a result of uh, his testicular cancer.
1: So if, if we traditionally think of testosterone in the role of kind of resistance training and anabolism, um, where do you see the benefit for endurance athletes?
0: Oh, it's just, it's just phenomenal for recovery. I mean, it's, um, it, you know, it's still, I know that we don't think of endurance athletes as, um, in the same light that we think of people that are strength training. But if if you just think of it in the sense as if you think about the amount of damage that that level of physical activity is going to do, uh, whether it's riding a bike, prepare for the tour de France or whether it's preparing for marathons or ultra marathons that is doing a lot of damage. Um, your body uh, will really benefit from uh, the extra testosterone, the extra anabolism. And although it isn't necessarily making you big, there's still a lot of things that your body needs anabolism for uh, to recover from these uh, intense uh, endurance exercise sessions. So there's just there's no question that it would it would it would really benefit an endurance athlete. It would benefit. (laughs) This is quickly becoming a
1: promotion for testosterone. (laughs) Um, So, if if you take testosterone away, um, what are the implications for exercise adaptation?
0: Yeah. um, So, uh, again, testosterone can be uh, can be substantially reduced uh, in endurance athletes. Now, by the way, uh, this doesn't only apply to endurance athletes. Because it hasn't been studied very much, if you're going to study this, it would make sense to go to the endurance athletes because those are the ones with the with the highest training volume. Those are the ones where you're most likely to see it. But this has even been documented in American football players during periods of, uh, of high training volumes testosterone gets driven down. Uh, it's been documented in military populations when they, uh, when they are forced to do these uh, crazy missions where they're maybe sleep deprived for a couple of days, not able to eat for a couple of days and do a ton of marching. It can cut testosterone in half, uh, literally within a couple of days. Uh, so again, it's not just the endurance athletes. It's, it's all kinds of populations. It's just easier to study in the endurance athletes. But again, remember, sometimes the people have low testosterone and they don't have any negative effects but sometimes they do. And when they do, it can, it can become a real problem. Now, uh, this would be an area for, for um, some of your listeners uh, that would know a lot more about this than me, but I believe andro- uh, androgen deprivation therapy is a common part of uh, prostate cancer therapy, yeah. isn't it? Yeah. Is that right? And I believe, in, I believe in those situations, the body has other anabolic mechanisms that are able to pick up the slack of the, the loss of the androgen and uh, even people undergoing androgen deprivation therapy, I believe, are still perfectly capable of gaining strength and gaining muscle mass. They just, uh, the, the body has these redundant systems like IGF, like growth hormone, uh, that can pick up the slack that is lost from testosterone.
1: So that's that's what I want to zero in on. So talk about some of the mechanisms there. How does IGF and GH um, pick up the slack for lack of tea? Because I think a lot of people kind of automatically go to testosterone being such a kind of anabolic hormone if you will without it it's almost um, you know impossible to see any adaptation
0: well uh, those those hormones still have anabolic properties and i'm not saying i'm not saying for a second that you can just happily live without testosterone the testosterone studies when they inject people with testosterone i mean it's uh it's not far-fetched to call it a, a miracle drug it the 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 effects are incredible, and this it's, again is one of the reasons why I don't I don't get angry uh, people that have taken it because when when you see what it can do, when you when you read the research studies and see what testosterone can do when it's taken exogenously, it will uh, it will make people want to take it. I, I start my I teach a drugs class uh, at at Jacksonville University, and I um, uh, I love it. It's my favorite class to teach. But when we start when we start covering testosterone, I I have to consistently remind the students. Please, I please don't take this as uh, as me recommending testosterone use. I'm not. I mean, we, you can't. It's an illegal drug. It's a it's a class three drug, and I, I believe you can get prison time for simple possession. But when you start reading about what it can do, uh, it people will be really motivated uh, to take it. It's uh, it's incredible specifically how uh those other those other hormones pick up the slack i mean i can't tell you uh i can't tell you in a deep mechanistic level how uh but growth hormone is an anabolic hormone insulin like growth factor is an anabolic hormone um and uh i'm i believe that they uh they would be part of the reason why people can live a normal life a, a uh, under androgen deprivation therapy, specifically how they do it. I, I got to tell you, I don't know what, what I can tell you is that the whole growth hormone axis is unbelievably complicated and it is extremely difficult to study.
1: Can you, uh, that was an excellent political answer of saying, oh, I haven't got a clue. <laughs> <laughs> um,
0: I really don't.
1: Uh, Let's talk a little bit about, um, how you measure testosterone yeah. and the differences between kind of like, um, free tea and all that stuff.
0: Oh, yeah, uh, that's a a really interesting area, actually. So, uh, yeah, you may hear that term free tea or you may hear this other term uh, biologically available tea. So um, testosterone is a steroid hormone. Um, A steroid hormone, people typically think of the term steroid and they think of, uh, you know, they think of growth and they think about anabolic steroids. But not all steroids are anabolic. Actually, all the word all the term steroid actually means is uh, that it has a cholesterol base. The stir in the word cholesterol is the same stir that's in the word testosterone. That's that's why it was named because it has that cholesterol base. Um, cholesterol is a lipid molecule and it doesn't, um, it doesn't interact with water, right? It's a, it's a it's hydrophobic. This is all relevant as to, as to uh, how this whole free tea thing comes in. I'm not going off on a tangent, believe it or not. So because it's hydrophobic, it cannot, uh, when, when testosterone is bound to a protein, that protein cannot pass uh, the membrane. That um, testosterone can only pass the membrane and interact with its intracellular receptor so the receptor for steroids is inside the cell it's not on the outside of the cell it's not within the membrane it's on the inside of the cell when testosterone is bound to a protein either sex hormone binding globulin or albumin it cannot pass the membrane so you could say you could argue that it's that it's biologically unavailable only when it is free when it is separated from what it is bound to can it pass the phospholipid bilayer, because that, remember, that's a phospholipid bilayer. So the fact that it's hydrophobic is now not a problem. Uh, It can pass the membrane, it can go inside the cell, uh, bind with its receptor, translocate to the nucleus, um, uh, upregulate transcription and translation and make more proteins. That's how it does its job. So testosterone can't pass the membrane unless it is free. So you have, this, uh, you have this total number, this total testosterone, and then you have this desire to, to, to assess somebody's free testosterone because that is arguably the bioavailable uh, portion because only when it is free can it pass the membrane and interact with its receptors. So people have felt the need to, to measure that too. However, uh, it's a little bit of a controversial area because that, that whole idea is called the free hormone hypothesis. Okay, that's how all steroids work, not just testosterone, but any steroid, uh, aldosterone, cortisol, whatever, it, that is the steroid mechanism. That is completely different to how, uh, how a peptide hormone works or a catecholamine or, or, or an amine hormone works. However, it does seem that there is a non-genomic mechanism for testosterone as well. So it does seem that testosterone, even when it is bound... Can interact with a receptor in the membrane of a cell and still exert effect, and they call this the non-genomic, um, the non-genomic mechanism of testosterone. So, some people may believe that only free T is important, but if they believe that, they are they are underestimating the potential importance of the non-genomic um, uh, mechanisms. And this is a very long way of telling you, you do need to know the total testosterone and the free testosterone. Uh, they both have different ways of working.
1: So we, we talk a lot about um, the role of testosterone, but <laughs> as our, uh, our good friend, Dr. Kramer beats us over the head with, unless it can bind to something, it's largely irrelevant. So talk a little bit about the idea yeah. of androgen receptors and the role that they play in kind of the adaptation as well.
0: Oh yeah. I mean, that's uh, that's, I mean, it's brilliant. Uh, we talk about that in, in just kind of that's basic endocrinology that most people are unaware of. So, um, the, the, a hormone is ultimately just a messenger molecule. Okay. So a hormone is secreted from a, a gland. In this case, we're talking about testosterone. So the gland would be the testes. That hormone can be secreted into the blood system. Um, will then, uh, Will then travel around the body in the blood and then ultimately will interact with its receptor at the cell and it's not until testosterone has interacted with its receptor that it will have its effect until then it's just going around in the blood so you can you can take somebody's blood and you can find out their testosterone concentration but that only tells you so much so if the testosterone number has gone up for whatever reason it's reasonable to assume that more testosterone would mean more interactions with receptors and more effect. It's reasonable to assume that, but it is an assumption. It is not until you do say a muscle biopsy and you actually find out how much testosterone is bound to androgen receptors in the muscle that you truly know how much uh, of a testosterone effect there is. So going back to the hypogonadal stuff, that was that was one of the original suggestions from Dr. Hackney is is the testosterone low because testosterone uh, because the testes are secreting less testosterone that could be one reason. but is the testosterone low because more of the testosterone is being uptaken by the receptors? You don't know that if that if all you're doing is taking blood So that's a fascinating area of endocrinology that, that most people miss because just taking a blood, uh, just taking a blood value does not tell you everything you need to know
1: about that hormone. Does the um, uh, the mechanism, because you're kind of talking about is the T low because of these kind of two different scenarios, does the mechanism by which T becomes low um, have an effect?
0: Definitely. The first thing that uh, any endocrinologist would want to find out is if the testosterone is low, they're going to want to find out, is it a primary or a secondary condition? That's the first thing they are going to find out. Now, uh, what those two things mean is really simple. If it's a primary condition, that means that the testes is receiving its signal. Remember, right at the beginning of this uh, conversation, we talked about uh, that the testosterone begins at the brain. So is the testes receiving the signal from the brain to send out the testosterone, and it's just not doing it? That would be a primary condition. The problem is the gland, or is it a secondary condition in the sense that the only reason the testis isn't secreting more testosterone is because it's not receiving enough of a signal from the brain? That's the first question that any endocrinologist is going to want to ask. And the the way that you the way that you find out that, of course, is you measure the uh, concentration of the the molecule that takes the signal from the brain to the testes which is luteinizing hormone. Uh, luteinizing hormone is an absolute nightmare of a hormone to study uh, be- because it is, it is highly, highly pulsatile. And in fact, uh, crossing over into the, uh, the uh, women's area of research, um, the female athlete triad, one of the classic papers in this area was done by Anne Lauks who, who wanted to do a mechanistic paper uh, on on what the cause of the amenorrhea is in women that aren't eating enough, and and Dr. Lax knew uh, that in order to do this properly, she had to take blood every 10 minutes for 24 hours. That's how- that's how, you, that's how you assess luteinizing hormone. And she did it in a seminal paper in 2003. And it's brilliant. It's one, it's one of the best papers, one of my all-time favorite papers because uh, she, she executed that study just absolutely brilliantly. But if you really want to find out somebody's luteinizing hormone concentration, you can't just take one sample because it's highly pulsatile. It's sent out in bursts. You could take somebody's blood and then 15 minutes later, take it again and get a different luteinizing hormone concentration.
1: Does that same, well, it, not necessarily pulsatile, but what are the sorts of variability in, um, say, testosterone measurements, whether it's day to day or as a result of kind of acute exercise?
0: Oh, yeah, it's, uh, it's, it's all over the place. Uh, so there's just to get somebody's testosterone concentration, you've got to, take a, a, you've got to keep a decent amount of confounding variables uh, under control. So the first thing that we have is we have diurnal variation right? So testosterone is high, higher in the morning uh, than it is in the afternoon. So any of the reference numbers that you'll, uh, that you'll ever see are all based on a morning sample. Uh, if you took somebody's testosterone in the afternoon, everybody would be hypogonadal. Okay, so the, the reference values are always based on a morning sample. The, another thing that will really affect your testosterone concentration is eating. If you eat, it will drive your testosterone concentration down. Uh, potentially because it's uh, promoting the uptake of testosterone at the receptor level. Um, whatever the reason is, y- you're going to have to be fasted. Uh, so first things first, you got to do it in the morning. You got to do it, uh, and you got to do it fasted. Now, other things can mess with your testosterone concentration too, like exercise. Uh, if you remember when we were talking about uh, the Kona study, I said that we took we took their blood before they were uh, before they um, Underwent the race and then uh, immediately after uh, and then approximately one day and two days after. Well, not only was it was low to begin with, but it was even lower after they finished the Ironman and it took a couple of days to rebound. So intense physical activity can acutely drive it down. Um, Now, of course, that's an Ironman. That's not a normal amount of activity. You you probably wouldn't be driven down after a five mile run, for example, but that's just an example of how much it can change acutely. Another thing that can really change it acutely is strength training. Strength training, if done in a particular fashion, and typically speaking, moderate volume, um, pardon me, moderate load, high volume, short rest, that'll drive up testosterone for about 30 minutes. So physical activity can really affect it as well.
1: So how many measurements do you typically want to take to kind of not necessarily confirm, but have a decent idea of like, okay, they're kind of consistently in this low, lower threshold?
0: Well, I guess it would all depend on how low they were in the first place. So if you, if you have somebody that is, uh, the reason that you're, ta- you're finding out that testosterone concentration is because you are suspecting Uh, of hypogonadism uh, and then you saw that it was a let's say in nanomoles per liter a eight which is really quite low then I don't think you'd need to take it again I think you'd have your answer there if you had if if you took it it was a 14 which is a little low but uh, still technically normal maybe you'd want to take it again in another month and maybe you'd want to track it uh, take it let's say Uh, every one to two months on a regular basis uh, to see if it is uh, dropping into the abnormally low range. But you'd still be associating that with symptoms of hypogonadism as well. If the person isn't suffering from symptoms of hypogonadism, then don't worry about it anyway.
1: I wonder does, kind of talking about that Kona stuff, I wonder does fitness act as not necessarily a buffer, but in elite level athletes, does it need that type of volume to drive it down in in a sense of kind of what you were saying with recreational athletes, would they, because they don't have the same levels of fitness, do they need a lower volume that would have the same kind or similar reductions in testosterone? Does that make sense?
0: Uh, are you saying so because, because you're not very fit, you wouldn't have to do that much and it could drive down your testosterone pretty fast. Is that what you're
1: saying? Uh, that's what I'm asking. Don't put me on record as saying anything.
0: Yeah. If, you, <laughs> <laughs> if you are, if you if you acutely increase training volume, uh, it will probably drive testosterone down acutely. But again, uh, we just published this last year. I was very fortunate that Dr Hackney asked me to be a part of a, a part of a project. They took some uh, untrained um, untrained individuals, and they underwent a pretty basic running regimen. Um, They started the mileage relatively low, but they increased it every few weeks over the course of a couple months. And a couple of months later, their testosterone concentrations had dropped statistically significantly. But their fitness had gotten much better. So, again, uh, you can't equate testosterone with performance because testosterone can drop in response to an increase in training volume. Yes. But it doesn't necessarily drive performance down. There is no, often in this whole biomarker world, people are looking for this, this one biomarker that sort of, that could perhaps diagnose overtraining. And unfortunately it doesn't exist. There won't, there won't be one. There is no single hormone that will be able to tell you, there's no single biomarker that will be able to tell you if overtraining is happening. Everything is so nuanced and so specific to, to, to context that there just won't be one. There won't be, there won't be a blood number that we can take and say, this is a problem. You will always have to take a large panel um, uh, of values, consider the person and their entire situation, and then make up your mind as to whether or not that person is so-called hypogonadal and whether that's something you should do, uh, whether there's something you should do about it or not. It'll never be simple.
1: So, where do you see kind of uh, your research moving forward in this space, or what would you like to do, or even let's go ideal best case scenario? What would you do to look at low T and how how you would target in the space?
0: Oh, I would just I would love to have the ability. So, the first thing that I need is is regular, easy access to a Dexa. Uh, a Dexa. The the laws on who can run a Dexa machine vary from state to state. I was fortunate at my previous institution to be in the state of Georgia, where you did not need to be an x-ray tech, a certified x-ray tech. But now I've gone uh, just a two hour drive south. But unfortunately, I crossed the border uh, into Florida and Florida has a different rule. And Florida, you have to be a certified x-ray tech. So not only do I have to convince my university to uh, invest in a DEXA, which I have been begging for since the day I got to Jacksonville University, once that comes, I will then need to be a certified x-ray technician to run the DEXA. So it's even going to be difficult, even once we have one, uh, because I will have to run all of the data collection or any other faculty or students that want to become x-ray certified, but it's not the quick and easy process that it was back in Georgia. So uh, that's the first big hurdle for me to overcome. But when I do, I would just love to to study two two areas uh, of of my uh, career, come together with heavy strength training. And I still love strength training. Um, Obviously, being a student of Dr. Kramer's, I I love strength training. Um, I would love to combine that with this bone physiology and study heavy strength training and its effect on bone. Because it does seem to be... Heavy strength training that is necessary to to stimulate bone adaptation. So uh, often people know that it is weight bearing activity and strength training that stimulates uh, bone uh, bone development. But what 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 will typically happen is let's say it's uh, it's women who who suffer uh, considerably more uh, from osteoporosis than men, and we all know that your kind of your typical woman, if you like, tends to fear to some extent strength training for whatever reason um often it's kind of this fear of bulking up so when uh when a population with a low bone mineral density hears that they should strength train to stimulate bone they will often end up in a local uh ymca class doing a circuit training exercise and doing uh, five pound lateral raises uh and believing that that will stimulate bone adaptation now I was previously a personal trainer. I taught circuit classes and there's nothing wrong with five pound lateral raises, but they, but that is not what is necessary to stimulate bone adaptation. You have to load the spine and it has to be heavy. And often that, that, um, that scares people. And when I use the term heavy, I mean, in the sense of, of, of relative, not absolute. So, I mean, it has to be a high percentage of your personal one repetition maximum it seems to be at least 80% 1RM is necessary to stimulate bone adaptation. As crazy as it sounds, you've got to make the bone bend a little bit. It's nowhere near the amount of bend that is required to fracture a bone, but it does have to, to some extent, bend the bone. The bone will respond to that and get more dense uh, in the same way that when you strength train you tear apart muscle and the body responds by making stronger muscle, uh, exactly the same thing is necessary for bone, so you have to you have to lift heavy so what I would love to do it would be heavy strength training studies on people with low bone density uh, and seeing how long it takes for for the bone to recover and whether other things have to be taken care of too like vitamin D and calcium, for example, uh, and see how effective this is at, at um, at regenerating bone and really, really ultimately encouraging people to lift heavy.
1: So, do you, um, is your primary kind of interest in, in working on bone? Um, or are you concerned with kind of other body composition outcomes in terms of lean body, lean mass, or fat mass? Or is it just as long as you take bones kind of in terms of a hierarchy, one of the most important ones to look at the first?
0: I still, yeah, I still i you know i love so many different aspects of exercise (laughs) physiology, and i would certainly still be interested of course in uh in lean mass development and changes in body composition i of course would always be interested in that um uh but that's going to happen if you're lifting heavy weights on a regular basis that's going to happen right those body composition changes are going to happen yeah
1: it's it's trickier than what we do um you know the ADT world, and and even probably testicular cancer. Testicular cancer hasn't been researched much at all. But like kind of what you were saying, the 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 stress that needs to happen to see meaningful change in lean mass, um, and at least in the context which we which we study it, it it just is is really really hard. You're fighting an uphill battle. Like um, there's a great meta-analysis uh, that came out last year that kind of demonstrated that we haven't really been able to change it much at all. Like you're looking at maybe half a kilogram, anywhere from three months to six months. And to be honest, knowing or kind of looking at how people are, are talking about their body comp measurements, I'm not convinced that that half a kilogram isn't measurement error or at least some. Mm, and s- so course. I'm coming at it now from the perspective of maybe in this context, maintenance of lean mass is probably the best case scenario, particularly with ADT. Um, and reductions yeah. in T, it's the fat mass jump that is kind of the more concerning thing to me because the, the drop in lean mass is kind of more slower. Um, it, it's a little bit more gradual. And if you can implement resistance training to target that, you're looking at anywhere from 20 to 30% jumps of, in uh, body fat. And so to me, the wow, health really? consequences of of the increase in fat wow. mass is probably more damaging long term than the, I don't know, true uh, 10% reduction in lean mass over time and so go on
0: uh, I'm just gonna say that's so interesting because um, the the studies where people have been given testosterone supplementation they see the lean mass go up like crazy uh, but they don't see the fat mass reduce very much it's very small reductions in fat mass by giving people testosterone so it's so it's so interesting that it's kind of the other way around here, you, you deprive them of testosterone and the fat mass jumps up because you don't see the fat mass drop drastically when you give people testosterone. So really
1: yeah, and I don't know if it's if it's a direct correlation. You know what I mean? Like I don't know if it, if it's kind of like you were saying, the physiology and, and the causality of it, I'm not sure, but it's fairly consistent across the board. Wow. Um, and I think at least in air context, context uh, Dr. Fo at OSU was one of the first and only to see changes, meaningful changes in fat mass in prostate cancer, men with prostate cancer and ADT, because he was focused on a weight management intervention designed to target fat mass. So a lot of the reasons we don't see shifts in fat mass is because there's no consideration for it. We just do resistance training protocols with the goal of increasing lean mass and whatever happens, fat mass happens. And so where I'm kind of moving forward in my thinking is, can we design these uh, training studies where a focus on the weight management approach, shifting fat mass, but have the mechanisms in place to maintain bone mineral density and lean mass. So if that's creating where I'm coming from or, or protein or whatever way we can give further stimulus to just keep the lean mass where it is. And if you can mm-hmm. keep lean mass, maintain physical function and strength, uh, or improve physical function and strength because those two are pretty sensitive to change and drop fat mass I think that's going to be the best outcome
0: yeah definitely and it's going to be quite a challenge I'm sure in somebody who's who, yeah who's recovering from cancer yeah, when you said before, you don't see
1: the lean mass go up very much, but I assume you see the strength go up. A yeah, yeah, that that help. yeah, I hope. <laughs> um, yeah, the, the the signal there is pretty big, you know. Um the, the strength change we can get we can get fairly big jumps, particularly one protocols that move towards kind of the heavier type training. Um so it, it's not really a problem there. then it's kind of dealing with the functional limitations. Um, Yeah, so it's cool. That's kind of what what, um, gets us motivated and excited about it. Um, But I appreciate the conversation, man. I think it's such a fascinating insight into the work that you're doing, into the role of testosterone in kind of physiology and and how important it is um, to to try and uh, work with. So it was a cool chat, man. Where can people um, keep up with you and find out about what you're doing?
0: Well, I'm trying to get more active on Twitter, so you can find me on Twitter at David R. Hooper PhD. I didn't want to put the PhD in there, but uh, some other bugger called David R. Hooper had already taken that handle, so I had to do it. Um, So you can find me there. Um, uh, Anybody who's interested in talking about any of this stuff could feel free to email me, uh, dhooper4 at ju.edu. I'm just, I'm really grateful that you would have me on and you would think that uh, anybody would find uh, what I study interesting.